0: Good Sunday morning, this is the Arts Section. I'm your host, Gary Zydek. Welcome to WDCB's Arts & Culture magazine. Every week, we spotlight creative people, events, and ideas in the Chicago area arts community, while also fostering broader discussions on music, film, theater, and other creative endeavors. Support for the Arts Section comes from the League of Chicago Theaters. On today's program I'll check in with the artistic director of the Chicago International Film Festival which is set to get underway later this week. Lots of great films on the schedule, we'll highlight some of them. The dueling critics Carrie Reid and Jonathan Abarbanal will join me to talk about a new play that reimagines a period of Botticelli's life. Later in the show I'll talk to the artistic director of an ambitious ballet company that's hoping to reach new audiences. And we'll hear about an exhibit that offers a comprehensive look at a defining piece of Chicago history. All that's coming up, but first, before we get into the show, I need to mention we're in the middle of our fall pledge drive. We only call on you a couple times a year, and this is one of those times the arts section needs your support. Please make a contribution by calling 630-942-5299 or visit wdcb.org and you can make your pledge online. You listeners are what make this type of programming possible. Arts and culture doesn't get a lot of airtime anywhere, so you can show how much this type of programming means to you by calling 630-942-5299 or go to wdcb.org. We appreciate it. Thank you so much. Now on with the show. Cinema lovers rejoice! The 58th edition of the Chicago International Film Festival starts on Wednesday, October 12th. This year feels like a return of sorts to pre-2020. To mark the occasion, this year's fest will kick off with a celebratory block party on Southport in front of the Music Box Theater. The opening night film is a screening of acclaimed director Steve James's new documentary, A Compassionate Spy. The festival presents Chicago premieres of several highly anticipated films including Ryan Johnson's Knives Out follow-up Glass Onion, Sarah Polly's much-talked-about Women Talking, and Darren Aronofsky's Festival Darling, The Whale. And that's just a small sample of a program that includes 92 feature films and 56 shorts. I recently caught up with Chicago International Film Festival Artistic Director Mimi Plaché. We talked about the programming process and whether or not planning this year's fest felt different from the past two.
1: I mean, I would say, like, entries were up again, so the number of films that we looked at continued to rise. But we did see a big jump last year as well because I think in 2020 there was a, a pause on whether it was production or people wanting to hold their films until it felt like they could be back in theaters. So, But, yeah, this year I think the biggest change was, yeah, the increase in numbers, which meant we were actually able to increase the size of the programming team, which was great, just looking at so many films. And we kept the number of films about the same as last year, so it, just over 90 films this year, on um, feature-length films and uh, 56 shorts so I think you know we did know that we were going to be back in the theater uh, uh, again I mean last year every film had at least one theatrical screening but I think we were really paying attention to like kind of that big-screen experience and how it well it would be different if you were only watching something on the big screen Or really encouraging people to go back to the theater to see films that really um, truly benefit from that big screen um, in-person audience experience
0: just to give our listeners a sense of what the programming process is like, I'm sure it's it's a year-long process. It
1: is. We open our call for entries in mid-January, and um, they're officially closed in early July. Um, but we start watching films as soon as they come in um, and continue to watch until we um, close the program completely at the end of August. So... Um, it is, you know, a multi-month, nine, you know, almost eight-month process of watching films. But even, like, in the end of the year, we're starting to um, attend markets and festivals where we're seeing works in progress of films that will be done the following, you know, by summer or autumn of the following year. So it actually does even start a little bit before we open our call for entries. Yeah, but so we open them in early January. And I'd say the bulk of kind of the entries come in really in May, June, and July
0: and is that just a matter of curating narrowing what starts as this big list down to a a group that actually makes it into the festival
1: it does we um you know we have programming staff that three that are specifically focused on the short films but each also participate in another program um you know that they're also um, participating in or overseeing um and then Um, the features programmers as well we focus whether it's on documentaries or u.s independence or the international titles and we're watching stuff and then recommending it to other program programmers to watch and then we talk about them and you know some films we know right away that we want to invite them and others we have like extended conversations over several months
0: before we make a decision and then do you try to see all? Of, I guess that's probably not possible, or do you?
1: Yeah. Uh, well, I don't see every film that's submitted just because, <laughs> no, yeah. like, physically, like there isn't enough time in eight months to do that. No, but no, no. every film that's programmed, no. yeah, I make sure that you know. And a lot of that is, you know. Um, our programming team, one of the ways that we put the um, team together and hire is people with various um, backgrounds um, and um, whether it's different types of programming experience or types of films that they have expertise in, like um, Raul Benitez heads up our After Dark program. and. He's a huge genre film guy, and he's done a lot of genre film programming before he joined our team last year. Mm-hmm. So this is his second year. So And Sophie Gordon, who's new to the team this year, she worked for several years for the Chicago Latino Film Festival. So, you know, just bringing in uh, a team of people with um, different areas of expertise and interest and maybe an aesthetic taste. And, you know, I just think it makes for a more interesting program when we're bringing all different types of um, kind of people with um, various backgrounds and, and um, loves of cinema to the to the conversation. And then also, like I said, it makes for really interesting conversations and like a well-rounded program. So because everybody's seeing different films, one of the things, besides I love to be one of the first person people to see something because, you know, I love that sense of discovery as well, but also just making sure that the program is like fully rounded, that there isn't necessarily a lot of overlap, whether it's thematically or in terms of style and, um, yeah, just making sure all the pieces fit together.
0: So there are these three benchmark screenings throughout the festival, the opening night, the closing night films, and then the centerpiece presentation. What's your approach to to programming these slots?
1: I mean, they are a bit higher profile. So we do want to make sure that they are films that um, audiences are going to be excited to, to see, right? And that there's like momentum that carries throughout the festival, you know, from the very beginning until the end. And, you know, the centerpiece is kind of that peak and so that that's part of it um and then this year for opening night you know opening night we're always thinking what's going to really engage the local um audience the local film going filmmaking community with the festival and so you know this year and in years past too but we decided to go with a, a film that is by a great chicago director so it's a compassionate spy directed by steve james And, you know, we've shown several of Steve's films throughout the years, but it just seemed like the perfect way, especially kind of coming back out of the pandemic and doing the block party on Southport, which was always meant to be a celebration of, um, whether it's filmmaking or film going or film exhibition in Chicago, that it was the perfect film to open with. Um, It's not just being a great film, but also because of, you know, Steve is a director that we're proud to call a Chicagoan.
0: You referenced it this year, the The fest kicks off with a, a block party in front of the music box on Southport.
1: Yeah, we were as a staff brainstorming ideas of, you know, now that we're kind of all kind of more comfortable with being fully back and really leaning into the in-theater experience, like, but we're still not doing like like a big after um, opening night party or some of the other parties that maybe we would have done in pre-pandemic times. You know, how can we really, again, like thinking about how do we want to celebrate film in Chicago? Like I said, whether it's filmmaking or film going, or um, we have a lot of film organizations participating at the Black Party as well. So, you know, how do we really kind of celebrate, you know, kind of where we are right now and it's such a great moment for filmmaking in Chicago. But of course, the pandemic was a rough time, or and not that it's not ongoing, but, you know, there was a lot of adaptation that had to happen with how do you even make a film, uh, exhibit a film? How do you serve the local filmmaking community during the pandemic? And so now I think what we wanted to do was have an event where everybody was, Invited and anybody could participate and just truly celebrate um, You know all of the partner organizations that we continued to work with and partner with through the last two years and then um, And just kind of have a big celebration at the beginning that everybody could be um, invited
0: to I didn't want to go back to the other two big presentations. the The centerpiece then this year is is it a sequel to *Knives Out*?
1: I mean, I wouldn't say it's a sequel, and that they're not. You know, I think of it more um, both in terms of like the style and narrative of the film. It's you know more like a. Agatha Christie type, you know, where you have a mystery and you also have the same um, kind of detective at the center, at the heart of the film, but uh, the story is completely different. And yeah, I mean, Knives Out, which was also our centerpiece that year, such a a, a great film that our audiences really really responded to, um, and we added a second screening of that year, and so, you know, when there was the opportunity to present Glass Onion, it just really seemed like a, a great centerpiece film again and uh, especially when we knew that we were going to be able to pay a tribute to Katherine Hahn. Personally, I've been a big fan of her and her work for years. I did not know of her ties to Chicago. She was born in the area. She went to Northwestern University. I think um, she's really excited to come um, be back here. It's a place that she feels is home. And so we're really excited to um, be welcoming her and being able to celebrate her along with a really um, fantastic film for our
0: centerpiece. And then the uh, the Closing Night film is Noah Baumbach's latest.
1: Yeah, it's a film called White Noise. It's an adaptation of a novel um, by Don DeLillo from the 80s. And, you know, I think it was thought to be an unadaptable um, book. But, I mean, I think um, Noah Baumbach has done such a wonderful job in, you know, making it feel maybe periods specific but also completely relevant for um, the moment that we're living in right now and Adam Driver and Greta Gerwig deliver kind of these just incredible they're quirky performances but I mean the characters are quirky but there's a lot of depth and layers to them and so it's like both um, very serious and um, also really funny at moments.
0: Hey, if you're just joining us, you're listening to The Arts Section. My name is Gary Zydek. I'm talking with Mimi Plaché, the Artistic Director of the Chicago International Film Festival. There's a whole slate of films. Obviously, we can't talk about all of them, but there's two that I did want to highlight. One is this documentary I keep reading about, All the Beauty and the Bloodshed.
1: Yeah, so it's Laura Poitras' um, most recent um, documentary about the artist and activist Nan Golden, the photographer. It did just win the... Um, Golden Lion at Venice, which it's, you know, unusual for a documentary to take away the top prize at a festival like that. But I mean, I think it, it speaks to, to the power of the film and the film making. And uh, I think it's a film that once you see it, you know, you continue to think about and you really think about kind of that intersection between um, art and activism. Um, so both in kind of that representation of nan golden and her history um whether it's you know kind of her development as an artist and the type of um, art that she does but also in the ways in which she has uh, throughout her career used her art as a, a um you know in terms of activism and i think it also it just makes you think about how the film itself is also kind of an adding another layer to that um and bringing that all to light and um
0: I'm excited to see that one. Uh, And then another one I've been reading a lot about is uh, Women Talking.
1: Yeah, um, it's an incredibly powerful film, too. Um, You know, somebody had asked me if it felt if it feels like we have films that feel like they're kind of pandemic era films. And, you know, sometimes you think about like it's a film that might have a really small cast or it's a film that's set in like a very restricted location. Um, And this is a film with a very restricted location, but an incredibly um, large and amazing ensemble cast. Um, And um, it's also an adaptation from, from a novel. And, you know, there's so much is done with just this kind of one location. I mean, there's more than one location, but predominantly one location. It is a film that features a lot of women talking, but talking about subjects that are deadly serious for them and also kind of continue to keep us thinking. But I think it's the visuals um, along with the dialogue that are so powerful, you know. And so we felt that with a film like this to work completely in the way that it does, it's a combination of the direction And Sarah Polly, of course, is both an amazing actor and director. And the way in which she works with her cinematographer that is, you know, makes the film particularly powerful. So it's both kind of on this this narrative level as well on a visual level that keeps us completely engaged for the duration of the film.
0: So something like that will likely get a wider release in theaters, but for many of the, the films and some of these lesser known releases, the festival represents uh, really a unique opportunity to, to see them in a theater.
1: It is, so, but even for like women talking, I mean, we will have Sarah Polly and um, Luke Montpellier, the cinematographer with us in conversation, which, you know, I think um, both we can celebrate them, but I think also those conversations just illuminate kind of the process of filmmaking and, and also delve a little bit deeper into the subjects that uh, the topics that the film is covering and that approach to them but yes you're right Um, you know we all all of the films that we present it's the first opportunity to see them always in Chicago but for many of them they don't have distribution yet you know we bring in films from more than 50 countries around the world along with the directors and and some of them will get distribution you know a little bit down the road, but definitely there's some that you may never have the opportunity to see again. And also with so many of the filmmakers returning to the festival this year, I think it's also an opportunity to really engage with, with the filmmakers and learn something more, whether it's about that specific film or about their approach to the craft of filmmaking that really kind of creates this really unique environment and a one-of-a-kind event.
0: Right. I didn't mean to suggest people shouldn't come to see women talking here because I'm one of those people that I want to see it first too. Yeah we started with you know how this year feels different and now here we are days before the festival starts do you have expectations or like hopes for audience engagement
1: yeah, I mean, you know, ticket sales are going really well, and all of the feedback that we're getting from our members or from um, people who are maybe first time even audience members is really a lot of enthusiasm. Um, we also see that from like our response. We work with a huge um, core of volunteers, and kind of they're back in full force. Many returning, but some new. And I think you know, my hope is that. Um, People come to the festival, um, like I said, experience a one-of-a-kind event in the company of others who are as excited or as curious or who love film as much as they do or who just want to um, try something for the first time and see what that experience is like. I do think that there's uh, a real eagerness or hunger to go back to in-person events and to have that um kind of group experience, but I do think, you know, so many people, of course, are watching films at home or streaming them, but um, there's a real hunger to go back to the theater um, and have that in-person, big screen, you know, kind of fully immersive experience.
0: I think so, too. One of my favorite things, and I know not everyone can do it, is, is weekday matinees, mm-hmm. going to see a movie on a Monday through Friday when everyone else is at work.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> we're not encouraging everybody to play hooky, but uh, if you have free time in the afternoon, um, we do have matinee pricing, and um, we often have filmmakers also at the matinee screenings, and, um, you know, whether it's students or retirees or... Um, you know, sometimes, um, again, I think maybe more and more people are working at home and have more flexibility in their schedules. We do have a great turnout at the those matinee screenings, so you do get that kind of festival experience in the middle of a weekday afternoon as well.
0: Mimi, thanks so much. It's always a pleasure. Thank you. That's Mimi Plaché. She's the artistic director of the Chicago International Film Festival. It kicks off on Wednesday, October 12th, and continues through Sunday the 23rd. You can find a complete schedule of everything taking place at chicagofilmfestival.com. And a quick reminder, if you listen to the program every Sunday morning here on WDCB, thank you. But also make sure to check out the show's website over at theartsection.org. You can find past episodes and individual features available to listen to on demand anytime you want, plus pictures and links that go along with all the stories you hear on the program. Check out theartsection.org. And you are listening to The art Section. My name is Gary Zedik I'm joined now remotely by the dueling critics Carrie Reed and Jonathan Abarbanel. Good, Good morning.
2: Good morning, Gary. Good morning. Good morning, Gary.
0: The great early Renaissance painter Sandro Botticelli is at the center of First Floor Theater's latest production, a Chicago premiere titled Botticelli and the Fire. Known for works such as Primavera, Venus and Mars, and The Birth of Venus, the artist's work out of favor for a period as a younger generation of Renaissance painters gained notoriety. Botticelli and the Fire comes from Jordan Tannehill and is being directed here by Beau Frazier. And Jonathan, the, the play here focuses on a, a specific period of Botticelli's life.
2: Well, it's set in 1490s Florence, Italy, though they never specifically tell you the date, but there are certain historic events uh, that are referenced. So 1490s Florence, Italy, centers on the Renaissance painter Sandra Botticelli, whose best-known work, The Birth of Venus, is jokingly called Venus on the Half Shell. Uh, <laughs> and the creation of that painting figures heavily in the plot. But the play's language and sensibility are entirely postmodern, queer. Cell phones, TV, peanut butter, mimosas, <laughs> gender-blurring costumes, disco- and lots of exchanges between characters of the kind of uh, (laughs) you-go-girl kind of of dialogue and so forth. It's a very lively and highly theatrical play, which, frankly, I don't like very much. And my issues are with the play itself, rather than with the campy pop-mod staging by director Bo Frazier, although with a a play and a production like this, it will be difficult to know what the playwright has actually required uh, versus what the director has added. The characters in Botticelli and the Fire uh, were real Renaissance Florence citizens, among them Lorenzo de' Medici and his wife Clarice, Leonardo da Vinci, and the firebrand monk Savonarola, but the historic events that playwright Jordan Tannehill references did not occur when he says they did, and some didn't occur at all. And I find this uh, intellectually dishonest, and I, and I had a big problem with it. I maybe am too much the history buff, but that is one of – it's either one of my strengths or my weaknesses, depending <laughs> on how you, you, you look at it. The big relation relationship is a purported love affair between Botticelli and his boy-apprentice in the painter's studio, Leonardo da Vinci. But you know what? Leonardo never was Botticelli's pupil. And he was in his early 40s and living in Milan when the play's events take place, which are chiefly about the rise to power of the repressively radical Savonarola. Uh, Da Vinci did not collaborate with Botticelli in creating The Birth of Venus, as the play suggests. So I have these issues with it. Carrie... What's you your, know, I, I, I,
3: I agree. I think they're playing fast in the historical timeline. You know, I think one of the things that does work for me in the play is the idea of just, you know, how enlightened are enlightened people. Lorenzo Medici and his wife yes. view themselves as, like, we're the Renaissance. You know, the, the, we're, we're, we're making a past with the, breaking a break with that, you know, the horrible repressiveness of the medieval past. And to them, Savonarola is this, you know, demagogic populist who's riling up the people. Not that You know, considering that plague has returned, you know, and that, you know, poverty and all of that is still very much present. It probably didn't take a lot of riling up, but their posturing, especially Lorenzo's sort of posturing as, you know, the man of reason, only goes so far. We see that there very much is an authoritarian, tyrant, egotistical, (laughs) kind of, uh, you know, and frankly very patriarchal man uh, underneath, uh, you know, those those sorts of... uh, you know, Renaissance man, you know, trappings that he's that he's assuming uh, that he possesses. So that part I thought was really interesting and very timely with looking at you know our own you know our own world. You know, uh, last week you referenced you know the the uh, uh, Black, uh, Black Lives Matter and we see white American theater and we talked about some changes in leadership a little bit. And I think sometimes that plays out in our contemporary times. People bring in new leaders and say, this is, you know, this is the person who's going to clean house and everything's better than it was before. But it really maybe is just a little bit surface and maybe the people pulling the strings still have, you know, all the power and are only willing to give up a very little bit of it. Certainly, I think the show will resonate for anyone who and which should be most people, I would hope, you know, terrified by the rise of anti-LGBTQ Activists in the United States. This play was written, I believe, in 2018. So the play, plague references definitely came about, you know, before the COVID pandemic hit. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's very stylish. Um, I did find myself at point having a hard time really focusing in emotionally on some of the characters, with the exception of Leonardo. And as you said, I, uh, he, his role in this is historically suspect. But I think that he's presented as sort of the moral center of the story. I mean, in fact, there are points. I don't know if this struck you at all, Jonathan. But when they had the ensemble sort of reciting the measurements from, you know, sort of the Measure of Man, the the very famous yes. drawing, yes. that very much reminded me of uh, Mary Zimmerman's Notebook of Leonardo da <laughs> Vinci. Well,
2: well they not they not only recited it, they they sang it. Right. In, yeah. In in, in multi part uh, polyphonic uh, right chorus, yes. which is one of the uh, you know you know as I said. Uh, 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 the production is spirited and engaging. It has mm-hmm. some interesting surprises in it, some choreography, the polyphonic chorus, some simulated sex, uh, and a cast with charm and plenty of energy, certainly, mm-hmm. especially Alex Benito Rodriguez as Botticelli. Uh, still, I found it infuriating for the reasons <laughs> that I have already right. stated. And I don't and I, think I was infuriated, but I, I think it kind of
3: did create a distancing, and I wasn't sure how much of that is, as you say, is playwright's intent. I wasn't bored. I can certainly say no, that. No, no, <laughs> no, it's not boring. Yeah. But, uh, you know, play has a
2: great deal to do with the limits of tolerance of people who regard themselves mm. as liberal, as tolerant. And of course, sure. Savonarola was not neither liberal nor tolerant. Right. Uh, but Botticelli and the Fire really is not about Botticelli at all, nor is it about the nature of being an artist. What it is about, as you noted, is the quite contemporary uh, uh, statement or situation uh, of what it means to be openly queer in a highly judgmental or even repressive society, one in which being LGBTQ is problematic if not actually illegal. And it was illegal in Renaissance Mm Florence. But my feeling is that Tannehill interferes with his own message. By choosing Botticelli as a subject, because the Renaissance and even discussions of art are merely the framing devices for this play, and yet they take up major portions of the play and become, in a way, kind of a distraction.
3: Yeah, I will, say, but I agree. Like the visual flourishes are quite. I, I kept thinking of the late great designer Alexander McQueen with some of these, the, some of the costumes. Like if they had told him, do a, you know, do a deconstructed Botticelli collection, or he had said that he was doing that, this is the runway show we would have had. And you know, it, it also struck me, Jonathan. The, this show is part of a, 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 a sort of a continuation of these sorts of postmodern histories. I'm thinking most specifically of David Ajmi's Marie Antoinette, which was at the uh, Steppenwolf, I think. 2015 or so, which also presents the story of, you know, the downfall of Marie Antoinette as sort of a fashion pageant, as sort of a reality, almost like reality TV. So I think that that aesthetic, uh, for better or worse, and, you know, it'll be up to each person's taste as to how much they enjoy that sort of thing, is very much uh, becoming, I won't say steeped, but certainly an an aspect of uh, contemporary dramaturgy.
2: Well, you know, we also talked a few weeks ago about the uh, James Yams play at Steppenwolf. The, right. The spectacularly right. lamentable t- trial of Ms. Martha Washington. Very much in that. Yeah. A also. Kind yeah. Of pop history pageant. But he does not play fast and loose with the basic historic factual material. Right. And that's that's the difference. He plays fast and loose with everything else. Everything else right, uh, but, yeah. <laughs> but in, very much in, in, service, uh, in service of the theme. Right. Uh, but I, I have to add one more historical note, that the, the climactic event in this play is a showdown between Savonarola and Botticelli, and Botticelli is forced to renounce his work and art for very specific personal reasons. The curious thing, historically, Botticelli did support Savonarola, who was burned in the stake after four years of, of power, and Botticelli did give up painting in his last years, but he was not forced to, and he certainly never publicly burned his own works in Savonarola's infamous Bonfire of the Vanities. Yeah, they're still be, there. Yeah, The Botticelli yeah. works are still there to be seen. I wanted to know why
3: these decisions are being made as they would be made. And not just serving a playwright's agenda, that makes sense.
2: One final note, I think you and I both would agree that this is a show for adults. Oh, yes.
3: Yes. yes. No, no. do not bring children who are interested in art history. That, that's what the Art Institute is for. <laughs>
0: First Floor Theaters, Botticelli and the Fire, continues through November 5th. Carrie and Jonathan, thanks so much.
2: You're welcome. You're most welcome.
0: I'm Gary Zydek, you're tuned into the Arts Section. This weekend marks an anniversary of one of Chicago's worst moments in the Great Chicago Fire started on October 8, 1871. Over the course of three days, it took hundreds of lives and left blocks of destruction. But the blaze was also the catalyst for a rebuilding process that made Chicago the city it is today. Last year, the Chicago History Museum unveiled a new permanent exhibit that dives deep into the city's complex history before and after the Great Fire.
4: About 100,000 people left homeless, 300 people officially died, even though people, they estimate that it's more. And also 17,500 structures destroyed a three and a half square mile burn district.
0: This is Julius L. Jones, the lead curator of City on Fire, Chicago, 1871.
4: The scale of this disaster was unfathomable to people, and it it took a lot of representation and and visuals just for people to process and make sense of, of a disaster of this magnitude.
0: I caught up with Jones at the museum right before the exhibit opened. We talked about his approach to shedding new light on a subject matter most Chicagoans are already
4: familiar with. We wanted to take a story that we were familiar with, that we had a rich history of, of sharing, and bring it forward to a new generation of Chicagoans and make it relevant. And so we have one of, if not the largest collection of fire-related artifacts and materials definitely in in the city and and probably the country so this was a story we felt like was ours to tell and so the first step was going through the objects that we had and looking at um, what artifacts were in our collection and what stories those artifacts and those documents told And then from there, familiarizing ourselves with the the facts of the event, we wanted to put an angle on it. And I've been giving this a lot of thought recently about how much the pandemic um, affected how we approached it. Obviously we've been working on this exhibition almost two and a half years. And in that time and in that process, obviously, COVID-19 pandemic started. And so as we were working through this story, ideas about recovery, resilience, perseverance, bouncing back from disaster, calamity, and how people and groups and cities um, do that were at the forefront of our mind. And so we thought that taking that approach to the Great Chicago Fire would be a great historical parallel to sort of compare and contrast with how people are, were approaching the recovery and still are approaching the recovery from the COVID-19 pandemic. So it is one of those
0: subject matters a lot of us who grew up in this area are somewhat familiar with. What
4: parts of the great Chicago Fire story did you really want to highlight in the exhibit? What we found was that a lot, a lot, of people knew a lot about Chicago before the fire, you know, what burned, what was Chicago like that caught on fire. So we wanted to give people that context. The second thing we really set out to do was challenge a couple of myths or misperceptions that people had about the fire. One, obviously, most famously is Mrs. O'Leary and her cow, right? This is, This is not true. And we wanted to sort of contextualize that and help people understand that why Mrs. O'Leary became a convenient scapegoat for the fire is because she is of a class of people who are being blamed for many of the city's ills at the time we also wanted to communicate that another myth that people believe was that the city was unprepared for the fire we wanted to show that actually the city was prepared for a fire it had a modern professional fire department it had an elaborate alarm system but all of those preparations failed and it was really a combination of human error and fatigue from uh, fighting so many fires that were occurring throughout the summer and early fall of 1871. And then I think the third and perhaps most important myth which connects into the recovery from the pandemic is while it is certainly true that the story of the recovery from the fire is a story of triumph for the city and for the people who survived, there were also deep tensions, deep inequalities that existed before the fire that weren't addressed after the fire. So in a lot of ways, those inequalities were re-entrenched after the fire. And we wanted to talk about that because inequality during the COVID-19 pandemic was, was something that Uh, people have spoken a lot about and people have talked about how to fix and repair those inequalities that the pandemic exposed. And what was clear in our historical record is in 1871, no one was really talking about fixing and addressing inequalities. In fact, um, people believed very strongly, particularly those in charge of the recovery, that people should be returned to their pre-fire state Station, right. So if you were poor before the fire, you should be poor after the fire, and if you were middle class or upper middle class before the fire, you should be upper middle class, uh, middle class after the fire. And we, we thought that was an interesting thing to point out and a provocative um, approach uh, for the exhibition to take. Just to go back to the Mrs. O'Leary aspect, I can still remember
0: learning about the fire in grade school and it was taught that Mrs. O'Leary's cow started the fire. It's been a while since I've been in grade school, so I don't know if that's still being taught, but I know that's a misperception a lot of people still have. Do we know anything today about what actually caused the fire?
4: No, we don't know exactly what started it, right? We. Know that it could have been any number of things. Um, people have speculated everything from a cigarette bud to a meteorite, and so there are lots of stories about what started the fire. I think for us, we didn't want to get into sort of a, you know, who done it or what did it kind of approach. We really wanted to peel back some of the layers of the story and get people to understand why is this taking on this life of its own this myth about this woman and her cow and also we wanted people to understand that in reality it doesn't matter what started the fire right that this could have been any number of fires that were occurring in Chicago on a daily basis that spread out of control, but it was the perfect combination of factors that led to this fire being the one that grew out of control and then led to how people process the fire and assign culpability to Mrs. O'Leary, who is a stand-in for immigrants who are being blamed for societal ills more broadly.
0: If you're just tuning in, this is the Arts Section. My name's Gary Zydek. I'm talking with Chicago History Museum curator Julius L. Jones about the Great Chicago Fire. The museum's permanent exhibit on the fire is divided into four parts. The first section aims to paint a picture of what the city was like 150 years ago.
4: The first one being the Wooden City. And that's really to communicate to visitors what Chicago was like in October of 1871. What was the city that caught on fire? We really wanted to drive home three points. One was that being a city made of wood, it was highly flammable. So we have a section called Will It Burn? And we talk about different things that were common around the city that were around and potentially could be flammable. So we talk about roofing and and, uh, construction materials. We talk about animal poop as there were farm animals, what we would think of now as farm animals living in Chicago, hay, coal, even the um, other (laughs) elements like the streets and sidewalks and even some water pipes that were made of wood. We communicate all of these things so you sort of get the context of a city ready to catch fire. We also talk about the weather, which is it was hot, dry, and windy, and all of those things led to the fire um, growing and taking on a life of its own once it started.
0: City on Fire, Chicago 1871, features more than 100 different pieces, including artifacts and multimedia installations. One of the highlights of the exhibit is a reproduction of a giant painting of the city during the fire. The original work, which is called a cyclorama, was on display as an attraction during the 1893 World's Fair.
4: So what we have on display in the exhibition is a reproduction of the study of the original cyclorama. So a study is an art term that essentially means draft. The original Full size cyclorama was actually 378 feet by 47 feet. And it was so large that it was housed in its own building on Michigan Avenue between Madison and Monroe. That original cyclorama was actually destroyed and and sold for scraps, and so what we have in our collection is the study, which is about a one-tenth scale of that, and unfortunately, uh, displaying that actual piece would have been cost prohibitive, so we created um, geclay reproduction that gives you the exact scales of that that study and so we're really excited to talk about this in the context of how people processed the fire, how people got a sense of the scale of the disaster. That was something that people really had a difficult time conceptualizing. Do we know much about the purpose of the original cyclorama? Yeah, so we have a case which is a brochure of the attraction that was the original cyclorama it was open in 1892 and intended to correspond with the world's Columbian exhibition which was delayed a year and opened in 1893 and really at its core the original cyclorama was a commercial attraction a man named h.h H. gross started a company in which painted cycloramas and they were almost like temporary amusement in the same way we might think of a pop-up museum now. And so their purpose was monetary um, and to to earn revenue and to be profitable, and they
0: were. Jones hopes exhibit visitors learn more about this significant historical event, but also see some of the parallels that exist with the Great Chicago Fire and our current situation dealing with a pandemic you know, to have something like this happen and to
4: persevere, I think it does provide a historical parallel to our contemporary moment around the pandemic and thinking about how we can overcome and persevere over the challenges we face now. But I hope that one of the lessons that wasn't heeded after the fire of 1871 that will heat now as we recover from the pandemic is the vitalness of Recovering in such a way as to reduce inequalities and disparities and create a more inclusive and equitable city. And I think you see people uh, mindful of that as we think about recovering from the pandemic, you know, and hopeful that people will, will keep that in the forefront of their mind going forward. And I think the exhibit is a reminder to do that.
0: That's Julius L. Jones. He's the lead curator of the Chicago History Museum's permanent exhibit, City on Fire, Chicago, 1871. You can find more information at chicagohistory.org. You're tuned into the art section. Start it. I'm Gary Zydek. Start it from the bottom, now we're here.
4: Started from the bottom, now my
0: whole team. It's been quite a journey for the Orland Park-based 5'8 Ballet. Established in 2012, the company has grown from its humble beginnings and has no plans to stop.
5: We started with literally, I had $2 in my pocket um, to now having a budget of $1.2 million.
0: This is Ballet 5'8 co-founder and artistic director, Juliana Rubio Slager.
5: For me, you know, I was a dancer that was what I understood, but being a leader and running a business, right, which a nonprofit in a way is a business, all of those things, I think, took me a little bit by surprise. And so I'm very grateful for just the incredible people who have made the journey possible. Um, And I look forward to seeing how we'll continue to grow and develop um, and how we're going to be able to support more artists who want to tell stories that relate to our communities.
0: It was that desire to tell stories for communities that traditionally aren't represented by ballet companies that inspired the creation of Ballet 5-8. The company is currently making final preparations for its fall program. Imagine Better will be presented at the Athenaeum Center on Saturday, October 15th. I recently caught up with Slager to talk about the upcoming program and the evolution of Ballet 5-8. The Spring Arbor, Michigan native isn't exactly sure where her love of ballet comes from, But once she started dancing, she never stopped.
5: My dad is a nuclear engineer and my mom is a nurse by trade. So I think what we decided is I must have seen it on PBS um, because we really can't figure out where I learned about ballet. Um, But my mom said, I think you must have seen the Nutcracker on PBS one Christmas and you were about four years old. And then after that, you begged me to put you in dance lessons. So, yeah, I just kind of annoyed her until she put me in ballet. Um, And then from there, you know, I just fell in love. I remember that first class, a lot of the girls were much older than I was. And, you know, I was the only Latina in the room. It was a lot of Caucasian little girls. But I remember going in and being like, even though in some ways I don't feel like I belong, the music and the movement I think have always moved my soul on such a deep level um, that I knew it was something I wanted to be a part of and so I think that was a natural fit for me um, just because I love to move and I think I express myself a little better honestly in movement than I do in words um, which is one of the reasons why now I'm a choreographer.
0: Slager continued to study ballet into her young adult years. She eventually moved to Chicago and immersed herself in the local ballet scene.
5: I actually married a Chicagoan, um, so he was fin- finishing up school here, um, and I moved here in 2009. We got married in 2010, um, and so, yeah, I've been here ever since. Just fell in love with the city. It's absolutely just one of the best cities in the world. I think we have um, New York beat and L.A. beat on so many levels. Um, we got less traffic than L.A., and we've got better-smelling uh, subways than New York. So I, I love Chicago, and, yeah, I think Chicago brings out a very unique um atmosphere for artists because you do have so much of the industrial revolution is encapsulated within the architecture here. But then you also have a lot of forward thinking and then even a few older pieces of architecture that kind of harken back to before the Great Fire. So I think artistically, even the landscape of Chicago is very inspiring. Um, And just driving down here this morning, I was remembering, um, yeah, just how many times I've looked at those buildings and how often they've inspired me creatively. So I really do love um, being a resident here and adding to the artistic cacophony of voices in Chicago.
0: So did you immerse yourself in the local ballet scene once you got here or did you know you wanted to start something
5: new? Yeah I did. Um, I taught pretty much everywhere. I feel like my joke is anywhere there was a ballet class I have taught there at least once um, which has been great getting to know all of the local talent. Um, There really is a lot of amazing local ballet here in Chicago. Um, We've got Joffrey of course but there's a lot of studios in the city and in the suburbs both um, that are training beautiful young dancers. So yeah I've spent a lot of time um, just investing in that part of the chicago community Um, but i think i also saw a need for a ballet company that would break out of the mold of what we traditionally think of for ballet and kind of hearkening all the way back to my younger years of being the only latina in the ballet class um, i i would love to see even more dance companies putting together stories that have diverse backgrounds. And so that is something that I started through Ballet 5-8 because I knew that it was unique and that it wasn't necessarily being done anywhere else.
0: That desire to break the mold fits into Ballet 5-8's mission.
5: Our mission is to spark discussion of life and faith. And so those are two things that are very important to me. Um, Family, faith, you know, all of the kind of the deeper topics of our lives are things that I enjoy creating art about, Um, and I think every artist kind of lands on their soapbox, if you will, and their niche of things that really speak to them. Um, And for me, that kind of the translation of our inner world into dance is something that's always really fascinated me. Um, And I think good art is when you can make somebody feel seen um, when you're in the theater and and you watch something on stage and you go, oh, I get that. I relate to that. Like I have been there. Um, To me, that's kind of the holy grail of art. And so creating a company that could model what people are going through in their real lives, but at the same time, elevate what we experience and lead us towards hope and towards a better community. Those are things that have always drawn me in.
0: How does the, the mission and that desire to be more inclusive influence choreography? Do you have to think about creating works that speak to new audiences?
5: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so one thing that I've seen, at least in my community, and I think it's probably true in others, um, ballet can be super intimidating. You know, people just go, oh, ballet. Oh, that's not for me. You know, I'm not that person. And so I've always gone, wait a second, though, like ballet is for everyone and it doesn't have to feel um, exclusive or far off. So, yeah, I have created a lot of work that is really accessible. Even things like the Living Room series, which is new this year. Um, and it's a ballet that can be staged literally in your living room in a 10 by 10 square. Um, and it's all about the interactions of family life and how those small moments in the living room shape us um, our times with our, our mom or our dad or a brother or a sister, um, a grandma or a grandpa, how those things shape us and they form us. So, I think those are the kind of topics that people relate to um, and they want to see that they want to see themselves emulated in art but then they also want to see something that reaches beyond them and ties them to the rest of the community
0: how does the living room series work do you have to go to like a specific site and create new choreography
5: so yeah the basic premise is there are seven universal emotions so psychologists have these seven universal emotions um like anger and care and love and seeking fear play Those are all the things that kind of make us human and kind of like primary colors, primary emotions can be mixed together in different combinations. And that is basically what we experience as our day, you know, in a life when we go through the ups and downs of a joyful moment to a really hard moment and the mixtures in between. So what I did is I created seven pieces, and each one of them can be customized. So it can be danced by either a man or a woman. It can be danced um, from the perspective of, say, an 80-year-old who's dealing with loneliness um, after their their husband or wife has passed on. Um, And then at the same time, that solo can be re-danced as a 30-something who is alone in their apartment here in Chicago. And so just crossing together all of the ties that bind us through those seven universal emotions. then what I do is I actually custom curate the program to the person we're dancing for. So if we did it in your living room, um, you would take a short survey that would kind of give us some of the things that you consider to be your biggest milestones, and then we would shape the dance around that um, so that you're able to experience your life and the beauty of it through dance.
0: If you're just tuning in, this is the Arts Section. I'm Gary Zydek, and I'm talking about the Ballet 5'8 Artistic Director, Juliana Rubio-Slager. The company presents a number of programs throughout the year, but its upcoming performance at the Athenaeum Center will be one of its most ambitious. There's uh, the two ten pole programs, one in the fall, one in the spring, the fall programs coming up uh, on October 15th, Imagine Better.
5: Yeah, so Imagine Better is a bunch of ballets that imagine our world um, in a better place than it is now. And I think we can all say the past three or four years have been difficult and taxing in so many ways so my hope is that each of the short stories that people will experience through imagine better um, will give them kind of a fresh perspective on what our community can look like um, when we come together in kindness um, and when we come together in joy and what it can look like to build a better world um, going forward than the one that we leave behind. It's also a wonderful celebration of Hispanic Hispanic Heritage Month. Um, That's something that obviously is really important to me, but I love seeing how people in the community also rally behind what it means to have such an amazing Latino crowd here in the Chicago area. So I'm looking forward to celebrating that and celebrating how important All the different races are to America, but specifically in this month um, how Hispanics have changed the course of America for the better.
0: And how many world premieres?
5: So we'll be doing two world premieres, one by Matthew Rushing of the Alvin Ailey American Dance Theater called Solace, and one by myself called Look to the East. Look to the East um, is a really virtuosic ballet. Um, It's very athletic, um, but yet poetic in the way that it's danced. The music is by Camille Pepin, um, and it has this kind of beautifully sparse um, and yet at the same time rich landscape of strings and woodwinds. Um, And it's kind of emulating and simulating the coming of the sun every morning where we look to the East, and every morning when that sun comes up, we're reminded um, that there's more beauty and more joy and more hope. So that's been a theme throughout my life where I like to wake up in the morning and look at the sun and remind myself okay no matter what's happened the last day or week or month um, the sun's coming up and it's a new day so that brings me hope.
0: Look to the East will be performed as part of the Imagine Better program on Saturday October 15th. Ballet 5-8 has another special presentation coming up in November. Coming up in November, you're going to be doing a program at the National Museum of Mexican Art.
5: Yeah, I can't wait to be back at the National Museum of Mexican Art. We're actually bringing a special Hispanic version of the Living Room Series um, that will feature a lot of Mexican folk music. Um, we'll be completely in Spanish, so for our Spanish speakers, it's going to be a really, really special performance. It will also feature Dia de los Vivos, um, which is a ballet that speaks to clinical depression and the hope of family bringing us through that. Um, it's a place on Dia de los Muertos, which a lot of people know of that holiday um, that celebrates family. So that will be included. And then Mi Familia is another ballet that we'll be presenting. I actually created that back in 2015, but it's one of those evergreen pieces that people have loved um, for years because it does speak to the joy and the community that we live in, not just as Hispanics, um, but as a family here in Chicago.
0: Is it important to you for those programs, uh, especially given the, the company's mission that Chicago Latinos come to, to see these things? Obviously, anybody's welcome, but are you? is that something that's important to you?
5: Yeah, it really is. We've been um, doing our job to get the word out in the Hispanic and Latino communities um, because I think sometimes ballet um, is seen as an art form that's only for people of a certain race. And so I think it's important that we make it clear um, that all are welcome in the theater um, and that you don't have to be from a certain background right you don't have to be russian to enjoy ballet Um, it really is for everyone Um, and i've used a lot of mexican folklorico um, alongside the ballet um, to kind of tie in my heritage with the art and the the beauty that i see in ballet
0: looking ahead obviously lots of growth in the first 10 years if we talk again in, in 10 years what do you hope we're talking about
5: Oh my goodness. Um, If we talk again in 10 years, I hope we're talking about us building a theater venue with housing, dorms for our school, and that all of the dancers are full-time and have health insurance. How's that for big dreams?
0: (laughs) That's Juliana Rubio Slager. She's the artistic director of Ballet 5-8, the company's fall program. Imagine Better is set to take place Saturday, October 15th at the Athenaeum Center. You can find more information at Ballet58.org That's ballet and the numerals 58.org Before we wrap up just wanted to pay tribute to one of the greats Loretta Lynn the Kentucky coal miner's daughter whose songs about life and love made her a pillar of country music passed away this week she was 90. Lynn had four children before launching her career in the early 60s. She became a wife at 15, a mother at 16, and a grandmother in her early 30s. Her personal story was put into an autobiography, Coal Miner's Daughter, that became a bestseller and was the source material for an Oscar-winning movie of the same name. Lynn had no formal music training, but was known to churn out fully textured songs in a matter of minutes. Lynn scored hits with fiery songs like Don't Come Home A-Drinkin' and You Ain't Woman Enough to Take My Man, which topped the country charts in 1966 and made her the first female country singer to write a number one hit. Lynn won numerous awards throughout her career, including three Grammys. She was inducted into the Country Music Hall of Fame in 1988, and her song Coal Miner's Daughter was inducted into the Grammy Hall of Fame in 1998. She received a Grammy Lifetime Achievement Award in 2010, and in 2013, she was awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom. She'll be missed. We didn't have to but in the and that's going to wrap up this edition of the Arts Section, but remember, you can always find more arts and culture online by visiting the program's website over at the ArtSection.org, there you can find past episodes and individual features available to listen to on demand anytime you want. My name is Gary Zydek, I hope you'll join me again next Sunday morning at 8 a.m. right here on WDCB 90.9 and 90.7 FM. Until then, I hope you have a great week. Thank you for listening. Also, it's our Fall Pledge Drive. Make sure to give us a call, 630-942-5299, or go online to make a donation at wdcb.org. Thanks. Put your holler